Hello, it's February 9th, 2022. My name is Simone, and this is 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. Like always, I hope you all had a wonderful weekend and are having a great start to your week. And on today's show and for the next few shows, there will be an announcement that I think you all are going to like. So please make sure you listen to the entire episode from beginning to finish. And also with today's show, I will warn you that this case is very, very gruesome and heartbreaking. And it does have an aspect of child abuse. Uh, Listener's discretion is advised. And with that, let's dive in to today's case. The year was 1993, and in Silver Spring, Maryland, this city around that time had a population of around 75,000 back then. And in Silver Spring, lots of people, including locals and tourists, like to relax and have adventure in one of the city's many parks. In this city, travelers and maybe some locals could visit the National Capital Trolley Museum. Or if people really wanted to have more fun, just a short distance away, locals and out-of-towners could travel to America's capital, Washington, D.C., to take in the historical sites, catch a professional sports game, or lounge or party at one of D.C.'s many nightlife spots. Back in Silver Spring, though, most people here considered the city a relatively safe place to live. However, in 1993, somebody committed a crime so awful and horrific, it would leave many residents wondering who the monster was that came to town. In the following case, you'll find out what the awful crime was, the investigation, and the aftermath in a case I title, No Mercy. Back on November 8, 1949, in the tiny town of Walterboro, South Carolina, baby Mildred Elizabeth Mary was born, and she eventually became a sister to 13 siblings. She was raised on a farm with her family, and as she grew up, Millie, as she was nicknamed, became the center of attention almost everywhere she went. 
This was because Millie was very outgoing and had a sweet spirit, and she was exceptionally beautiful. She was so beautiful that according to reports, every room she went into, she turned heads. Also while growing up, Millie and her siblings were encouraged to follow their dreams. And as she got older, Millie loved to read romance magazines. And due to her readings, her imagination began to grow. In one reading that Millie read, she read a story about a woman who worked as a stewardess on an aircraft because she thought it was glamorous and she loved the idea of traveling. So as soon as she was able, she enrolled in stewardess school, where of course, she breezed through her training smoothly. And after a little while, the now 22-year-old Millie was an official air stewardess slash flight attendant for American Airlines. When she began her career, Millie was flying to many different cities and states, and she met lots of people, and she loved it. And even better for Millie, she did so well at her job that she was unusually promoted fast to the role of senior flight attendant, which meant she was to work with the first-class passengers. And even though she was dedicated to her new job and career, and it kept her very busy, Millie never went without checking in on her family back home, because just like her career, she was dedicated to her family as well. Another aspect of her new career was that as a flight attendant, like mentioned before, Millie got to meet a bunch of new people, especially men, which meant she had a great deal of potential dates and love interests. And just a short time after getting her promotion on a Los Angeles-bound flight, Millie ran into a first-class passenger that she started to serve drinks and food to. Millie thought this passenger was handsome, suave, and confident. And coincidentally, the first-class passenger thought pretty much the same of Millie, except he thought Millie was beautiful, and he introduced himself to her as Lawrence L.T. Horn. Lawrence Horn was born in 1939 in Detroit to a baker and mother who was a former jazz dancer. And as a young man growing up, he loved music. According to reports, after Lawrence graduated from high school in the 50s, not having too many plans in life at the time, he did what a lot of young men did at the time, and he joined the military. He decided to enlist in the U.S. Navy, but shortly after he enlisted, he found he wasn't too fond of the military life. So while he was stationed, Lawrence had the idea that after he left the Navy, he would embark on a music career. However, he got lucky while stationed on the USS Lake Champlain, and he was hired to be a DJ on the ship's radio station. He went by the DJ name, LT, Your Man with the Plan, and he played popular soul records and singles 
that were at the top of the charts at that time. While spending his time as a DJ, Lawrence realized he had talent in electronics and perfected his craft as an electronics engineer. Fast forwarding to 1962, Lawrence was discharged from the Navy and returned home to Detroit. Unfortunately, when he got back home, he was unemployed and looking for a job. But as luck would have it for him, word got out about his engineering skills. And when Barry Gordy, the founder of the famous Motown Records, heard about his skills and actually heard what he could do with mixing music, he just had to hire Lawrence. Lawrence was hired as a technician for Motown for $50 a week. And as he worked there longer, Lawrence became the record label's first full-time engineer. He was soon promoted to chief mixing technician on one of the most popular and successful smash hits to come out of Motown, which was My Girl by The Temptations. And the hit song stayed on top of the charts for 13 weeks in 1965. And after Lawrence proved himself to the label, he succeeded in mixing great hits for Motown. And by the end of that year, he co-produced another smash hit called Shotgun by Junior Walker and the All-Stars. Although this song was one of the few songs he got credited on as a producer, Lawrence's success soared even further in Motown. And by this point, his salary and pay got even higher and Lawrence was receiving high praise from his colleagues. One colleague said of him, quote, he could build equipment that was a shock to us. Not only could he work the stuff, he would go out and put it together. That was amazing. Like when the major company that made equipment, like Sony and people like that, he built equipment. He could have worked for them because he actually could put the stuff together. Just like guys who know how to build a computer, that's a certain kind of genius. He had that ability. He was absolutely married to what he did." End quote. And while working with Motown, Lawrence eventually became acquainted with one of the label's receptionists, and they began to date and eventually marry in the same year he was mixing hit after hit. Lawrence was apparently a loving husband to his wife, and when she decided to leave Motown and go to college, Lawrence was said to help his new wife with her studies. And they read books together, and Lawrence would include his wife a lot of times when he went to the studio, and she'd watch Lawrence mix and remix songs all night. But according to reports, the marriage between Lawrence and his wife barely lasted a year, but it's not publicly known what caused the marriage to break. In true Lawrence fashion, however, even though his marriage was over, his career at Motown was not. And he was now a Motown veteran who Barry Gordy could count on to mix more hits for the label. Lawrence had an even bigger salary, 
living the high life, success of what his hard work paid off for him. And by the 1970s, Lawrence was taking in everything Motown had to offer. The parties, the celebrities, the glamour. Nothing was stopping him. However, in 1972, the glamour and success came to a halt when that year, Lawrence was involved in a very serious car accident after his Porsche slid off an icy road in Detroit and flipped into a ditch. His car was destroyed, but miraculously, Lawrence survived with barely a scratch. And shortly after his crash was when he took a flight headed to Los Angeles and met Millie. Like mentioned before, there was a mutual attraction between the two, and soon they struck up a conversation, exchanged their information, and soon Millie and Lawrence were dating. Lawrence whined and dined Millie, and she was so impressed with his job at Motown, and he thought she was beautiful as a flight attendant working first class. And after they began to date, they were so smitten with each other that Millie would travel to Detroit to be with Lawrence sometimes, and Lawrence would travel to see Millie at her home now in San Diego. They were so in love that just a year later, on August 20th, 1973, Millie and Lawrence got married in Las Vegas. After they married, the newlyweds bought a new home in San Diego, and a year earlier, shortly after they met on their flight back in 1972, Motown had moved its headquarters to Los Angeles. And remaining dedicated to the company, Lawrence rented an apartment in LA where he lived during the work week, but on the weekends, he and Millie would meet up in their home in San Diego. By 1974, they welcomed a daughter named Tiffany. But apparently, shortly into the marriage, cracks began to show. Lawrence and Millie would argue quite often, but they'd reconcile, argue, reconcile, and this cycle would repeat constantly. However, they stayed together for five more years, assuming for their daughter, but by 1979, Millie and Lawrence, according to reports, experienced serious marital difficulties and broke up, but remained legally married. The couple apparently agreed that Millie would move to Washington, D.C. to live near her relatives, and by doing so, she'd have help in raising Tiffany while still working her career. Lawrence stayed in L.A., but sometimes the two would meet up for quote-unquote romantic meetups when Millie was working on the West Coast. And apparently, even though they were no longer together, but legally married, after one of their reported romantic meetups, Millie was pregnant again by Lawrence in 1984. And soon after she got pregnant again, they discovered they were expecting twins. Thank you. 
On August 8, 1984, Millie gave birth to a girl she named Tamiel and a boy she named Trevor. Unfortunately, the twins were born three months premature, but they showed promise for healthy, growing lives. And after four weeks in the hospital, baby Tamiel moved into Millie's sister's home while Millie tended to baby Trevor, who still needed to be in the hospital. Baby Trevor was born with underdeveloped lungs, and due to this, according to a report, he was diagnosed with bronchopulmonary dysplasia and required a life support system to assist his breathing. His health improved a little over time, but things took a drastic turn. Sadly, on September 16, 1985, Trevor's breathing tube was accidentally disconnected and it took hospital workers more than an hour to get it back in place. Due to this, Trevor had a lack of oxygen and it caused irreversible brain damage, leaving the now 13-month-old Trevor a severe spastic quadriplegic. He had no use of his limbs, he was unable to talk or see or do any basic functions and his doctors told Millie that he didn't have long to live. But against all odds, Trevor overcame his prognosis and regained his sight, was able to talk a little, and he was able to attend school. However, due to the tragedy with Trevor, Millie and Lawrence's marriage was completely drained and they finalized their divorce in 1987. They were ruled to have joint custody of their three children, but they mostly stayed with Millie, while Lawrence stayed in LA and paid $650 a month in child support. After the divorce, Millie's family and her oldest child, Tiffany, noticed something with Lawrence. He was barely around, and when he was, he showed virtually no interest in Trevor and sometimes Tamiel. According to reports, Lawrence allegedly never held Trevor or barely looked at him. And according to Tiffany, Lawrence apparently told her, quote, Trevor could never be a real son to me because of his physical and mental disabilities, end quote. Lawrence also never went to many of the twins' birthday parties, but Millie's family was always there for all three of the children. The family nicknamed him Tricky Trevor and Little Trooper. And coincidentally, just like the father who would barely look at him, Little Trevor loved music. And even though Lawrence didn't think of Trevor as his real son, it became a curious scenario when in 1988, Millie and Lawrence settled and won a lawsuit brought against the hospital for Trevor's malpractice and the family received $2.8 million with the intent that most of the money awarded would cover Trevor's medical care through the year 2003 when he turned 18. With the other money, according to reports, Millie received a tax-free payment of $250,000 and Lawrence received $125,000. With her share, Millie reportedly brought a $355,000 home for her family in an upscale neighborhood of Silver Spring, Maryland. And her new home was just a few doors down from her sister. 
On the other side, Lawrence didn't buy a sprawling mansion. He needed the money for way more than that. You see, right before he got his settlement, a few months before, Barry Gordy sold Motown to the corporation MCA. And due to this, Lawrence was severely demoted and was hired as a tape librarian at Motown. But the pay was only $28,000, a vast difference from the six figures he made before. And by this time, he had amassed a lot of debt. Even though he got the hefty settlement, his debts outweighed what he received, including owing thousands of dollars in child support. And he was apparently bothered that Millie received more of the settlement money. But this was because she was the primary parent of the children. Even worse for Lawrence was that by 1990, he was fired completely from Motown, leaving him unemployed. Lawrence eventually got a job as a computer repairman, but his settlement money had completely dried up. He lost his apartment, had to move in with a girlfriend into her apartment, and what he dreaded the most was that he had to borrow thousands of dollars from his mother, who had to borrow the money from another relative to get to Lawrence. Lawrence had it bad, and he no longer lived the glamorous life he once lived. But then, Lawrence had another idea. If he got custody of Trevor, he'd be the sole provider of him, and he'd get the money Millie had. After all, according to someone who knew him, Lawrence became obsessed with Trevor's settlement money. They claim that Lawrence was incensed that the hefty settlement went to Trevor, and he apparently said, quote, That little boy hooked up to a machine just lying there in that big house with his mom and round-the-clock nurses. End quote. And he began to wonder how life would be different for him if only he had the other settlement money. And then, by 1992, Lawrence had a plan. Hey 90s Crime Time listeners, Simone here, and I'm very excited to talk to you all about a sponsor that the show has received and I believe this is one of the coolest products on the game market. The game is called Hunt a Killer and it's a detective murder mystery game and one of the most unique games that I've come around. What I like about Hunt a Killer is that you can play the game as a solo detective or with your family and friends. With each game, you'll sift through documents, evidence, audio recordings, and all that good stuff until you crack the case and catch the killer. Hunt a Killer is an amazing experience, and right now you can go to huntakiller.com slash 90s crime time and use the code 90s crime for $10 off your order. And when you purchase, part of the proceeds for every game box sold goes to the Cold Case Foundation, an organization that is dedicated to helping with real-life cold cases. Again, make sure to use code 90scrime for a $10 discount and head on over to huntakiller.com 
slash 90s crime time and have fun cracking the cases. During the spring season in 1992, Lawrence went back to Detroit and visited his cousin Thomas. Lawrence vented to Thomas about his money issues, how he was now living in a small apartment in L.A. when he once had a big house in San Diego, and how Millie had all the money and he had none, and how she was always calling him about child support. In response, Thomas gave Lawrence a business card, and on the business card had the phrases spiritual advisor and house of wisdom printed on it. And the spiritual advisor's name was James Perry. After Thomas handed Lawrence the card, he told him, quote, give Mr. Perry a call. He helps people, end quote. So, According to reports, Lawrence met up with James, and they discussed business. By the summer of 1992, Lawrence called up his oldest daughter, Tiffany, who was now in college, and who he hadn't spoken to in around two years. And he told her that he loved and missed her, and the twins, Tamiel and Trevor. And he emphasized how he wanted to see Trevor. He wondered how Trevor's health was, and then he wanted to know if she wouldn't mind videotaping Trevor in his bedroom where he was hooked up to a respirator every night. And she agreed. And then, Lawrence oddly wanted to know if Tiffany would videotape the directions to her mother's home. And he told her it was so his family could see the area his children lived in. Tiffany agreed to that as well. According to reports, as he was headed to pick up Tiffany, he began to film his journey once he got to the D.C. area. He rented a van with a mounted camera and filmed his entire trip. When he arrived at Millie's home, he filmed every inch of her home, including the driveway and the address posted on the facade of the home. He then wanted to know if he could go inside since Millie wasn't at home. Tiffany told her father no, but she did take the camera and videotaped Trevor in his bedroom. Meanwhile, Millie began to suspect something wasn't right. According to reports, when she would call Lawrence about child support payments, Lawrence would yell at her on the phone and apparently threatened her with violence. She became so fearful of Lawrence by 1992 that she wanted to keep her family safe and installed an alarm system at her home. And hauntingly, Millie apparently told her family, friends, and some co-workers, quote, if anything happens to me, Lawrence did it, end quote.
By March 1993, Lawrence was back in Los Angeles, and on March 1st, he called Tiffany again and wanted to know where she and her sister Tamiel would be in the next few days. It's not clear where exactly Tiffany was going to be in a few days, but it was clear that Tamiel would be at her nearby aunt's home. But curiously enough, he didn't ask where Trevor would be. The next day, on March 2nd, at 11.03 p.m., Lawrence was videotaping himself and his girlfriend in their apartment. And for some reason, he filmed the time and date on the rolling channel guide scrolling away on his TV screen. And after some time, the couple went to bed. Early the next morning, on March 3rd, back in Silver Spring, at around 7.30 a.m., Millie's sister Vivian pulled up to Millie's home, and she saw something was wrong. Millie's car garage door was unexpectedly wide open. So to find out what was going on, she carefully crept up to Millie's home and let herself in. And when she did, she came across a sight no one should ever have to see. Inside were the slain bodies of her sister Millie, her nephew Trevor, and Trevor's night nurse, Janice Saunders. Millie and Janice had obviously been shot, but at first glance, it wasn't clear how Trevor died. When police arrived and began to investigate, they discovered that Millie and Janice had been shot multiple times in the head at close range and their eyes had been blown out. And when they got to Trevor, they learned that he had been suffocated to death. Police also found the home to be ransacked as if to look like a robbery. But oddly, valuables were still left in the home. Police found no bloody gloves at the scene, no fingerprints or shoe marks, no hair or even clothing fibers that give them any idea of a possible suspect. But during their investigation, while still in a state of shock and grief, Millie's sister Vivian exclaimed, quote, I know he did it. He didn't have any money. He did it for Trevor's money, end quote. And Vivian was talking about Lawrence. The police learned from Millie's sister and other members of her family that Lawrence made it well known he didn't like how Millie got most of the money from Trevor's hospital settlement and how he didn't like he still got questioned by Millie for back child support. So with this information, detectives took a closer look at Lawrence and a few days after the murders, they were able to obtain a search warrant for his apartment in LA. When detectives got to his apartment, they saw something very interesting right away. Inside, they found a hand-drawn map of Millie's neighborhood with her exact address highlighted. Detectives also saw Lawrence's at-home tapes, and one of the tapes they watched was a video he took shortly before the murders of him watching TV and how Lawrence walked in front of the camera a few times as if he wanted them to know he was at home. Detectives seized computers, 
audio cassettes, computer discs, and more from Lawrence's home. They also discovered several receipts from trips Lawrence made from LA to Detroit in the months before the murders. Detectives also discovered a series of questionable phone calls back from his home in LA to different motel phone numbers in the Silver Spring area. One specific phone call was made to Lawrence at around midnight on March 3rd, just two hours before the triple murder, and the caller was calling from a Days Inn motel in a neighboring city of Silver Spring. They then made a list of all the guests who were checked in at the motel on the night of the murders, and one of these names stood out differently from the others. And the name was James Perry. This was because this James Perry checked in at midnight on the night of the murders and checked back out at 6 a.m., which seemed like an odd timing to detectives. Detectives questioned motel staff about James Perry, and the staff gave police a Xeroxed copy of James' photo ID, and police learned he was living in Detroit. Another coincidence in detectives' minds, because they knew Lawrence was from Detroit. So a detective got in contact with James and questioned him as to why he was miles away from home for such a short time around the time of the murders. When they talked to him, James told them he wasn't talking. But after finding out James was living in Detroit and piecing together Lawrence's receipts from his multiple visits to Detroit and his phone calls to Maryland area motels, where it's presumed James was staying, detectives had enough evidence to wiretap Lawrence's phone. And in the meantime, they discovered several cash payments via Western Union. Detectives discovered that several Western Union payments had been given to James from a man by the name of George Shaw. And this George Shaw listed his address as 2562 Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. The same address as the Motown building. And as you may guess, it was obvious that George Shaw was Lawrence. Detectives discovered that around the time of the murder, James received $6,000 for the job, but apparently he was supposed to be paid more because while detectives were wiretapping Lawrence's phone, they heard James grow increasingly angry because he was supposed to have been paid more because Lawrence told him he'd get more money after the job and Lawrence would receive the money after Millie and Trevor were dead. You see, Lawrence knew that if Millie and Trevor died before him, he'd get the rest of the settlement money and he wouldn't have to worry too much about back child support for at least one of the children. And again, coincidentally, during the investigation, Trevor filed court papers to stake his claim to Trevor's $1.7 million trust fund. But Millie's sister Vivian fought a civil suit to block Lawrence's claim to the estate. And now, by 1994, just as he was in court trying to file paperwork for the money, Lawrence was in for a surprise when civil attorneys, tipped off by police, started to question him about his involvement with the murders. 
They questioned him if he knew James Perry and if he knew James would be near the area of Millie's home on the night of the murders, in which Lawrence told them no. But that was okay. By this point, detectives knew Lawrence and James were the prime suspects as they had mounds of evidence against the two. And they had so much evidence they were now able to obtain a search warrant for James's home in Detroit. When they searched his home, they found a wide array of violent books, including books on how to make homemade silencers and a book titled The Poor Man's Sniper Rifle. But one book catalog stuck out to them the most. This catalog was made by a book publishing company called Paladin Press. And in their catalog, they had book titles such as Be Your Own Undertaker, How to Dispose of a Dead Body, and The Ancient Art of Strangulation. Detectives took a chance and called up Paladin Press and wanted to know if James had ever ordered a book from them recently. The receptionist told them that he had, and the book was titled Hitman, a Technical Manual for Independent Contractors. This book detailed precisely how to carry out the perfect murder, and none of it was fiction. Detectives believed James followed the book to a T and planned to never get caught. And with all the facts that detectives had learned about the case, they were able to correlate everything James learned from the book to how he committed the murders. According to reports, one passage in Hitman says, quote, A hitman without a gun is like a carpenter without a hammer. The AR-7 rifle is recommended because it's both inexpensive and accurate. End quote. During the initial investigation, police concluded that an AR-7 had been used to kill Millie and Trevor's nurse Janice and police later found the rifle in pieces in a roadside ditch with its serial number filed off and the barrel tampered with. The next fact was that in the book, another passage says, quote, use a rifle with a good scope and silencer and aim for the head, preferably the eye sockets if you are a sharpshooter. Many people have been shot repeatedly, even in the head, and survived to tell about it. Close kills enable you to determine right away if you have successfully fulfilled your part of the contract. Distant shots may mean waiting around to read the morning newspapers." End quote. During the initial investigation, it was discovered that Millie and Janice had been shot multiple times in their head, with at least one directly in their eyes and both shootings were at close range. Meeting with this factors, Millie and Janice were killed instantly. But according to reports, the book didn't give instructions on how to kill a disabled child. So in this case, James had to improvise. After James made his way into Millie's home by prying open a basement window with a metal file, he made his way to Trevor's room where Janice was sewing a quilt for her four-year-old son. James took Janice by surprise 
and immediately shot her to death. He then focused on Trevor, but instead of shooting him, he yanked the tracheotomy tube from Trevor's respiratory machine. Then he plugged the open end of the tube with one hand and sealed Trevor's mouth and nose with the other. He held his mouth and nose until Trevor's tiny body went limp. And according to reports, Trevor, who was eight by this point, suffered through the whole ordeal. And right after he died, James wasn't expecting his respirator machine to make a loud, blaring noise. And when it did, Millie heard it from her upstairs bedroom and ran downstairs to check. And when she did, she came face to face with James, who then proceeded to kill her. He then took more knowledge from Hitman and used a rental car to get away. He used cash at the motel that he stayed at, left no witnesses, messed up the house to make it look like a robbery, discarded the gun, and quickly got out of town. James had followed nearly two dozen points of similarity between Hitman's instructions and the actual murder. But he made a mistake. According to Hitman, even though he was correct to use cash at the motel, he was required by a motel staff to leave a copy of his photo ID and he left a copy at the rental car company as well. With all of this piled up evidence, arrest warrants were issued for Lawrence Horn and James Perry, with James being picked up in Detroit and Lawrence in LA. This also meant Lawrence's civil trial for the settlement money ended since he was now facing a criminal trial. At James's trial, prosecutors presented to court that Lawrence was introduced to James by Lawrence's cousin, and they corresponded through him for a while, until his cousin thought they were up to no good and told them to talk with each other only. They also learned that James had done hard time in prison before, including armed robbery, and was used to committing crimes. Fast forwarding to October 1995, James Perry was found guilty of the murders and was sentenced to three death sentences. In 1996, Lawrence's trial began, and like James's trial, the amount of evidence swayed the jury, and on May 17, 1996, Lawrence was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. At his sentencing, he showed no emotion, and as he was being led out of court, his daughter Tiffany shouted to him, quote, I hate you, I hate you so much, you killed my family, end quote. Even though the families were pleased with the verdicts, they felt that Paladin Press played a part in the murders and decided to take them to court with the lawsuit in 2000. Not wanting to go to trial, Paladin Prest pulled Hitman from their catalog. And after their founder, Peter Lund, who took no responsibility for the murders, died in 2017, Paladin Prest staff decided to close the company. While on death row, James Perry apparently never had any remorse for the murders, and his conviction was overturned by an appeals court 
and a second trial in 2001 sentenced him to three life terms. Eight years later, James died of an undisclosed illness while serving his sentence. Lawrence also apparently never expressed any remorse for the murders, and he too died while serving his life sentence in February 2017. According to an article, a detective had this to say about Lawrence, quote, He hired a monster to do what he wanted done, but could not do himself. That way, he wouldn't have to actually pull the trigger and watch his ex-wife crumple to the floor, her eyes blown out. He wouldn't have to gun down Janice Saunders as she sat quilting when watching over his son, a chore that he had never taken the time to do. And he wouldn't have to suffocate his own child and witness his son's terrible last moments. End quote. The story of the murders of Millie and Trevor Horn and Janice Saunders comes from the sources of the Washington Post, the New York Post, Washington City Paper, and others I'll put in the notes. All right, I know that one was a very, very tough one. It's one of the more lengthier ones that I've done in a while, um, but there was so much information on this case that I just thought I'd get as much in as I could. Um, the, I w I'm not going to do a long opinion piece. I had a lot of notes written out for this case, but I'm going to shorten it down uh, just so you all can express your own opinions. Um, I did try to warn you that it was some sort of ch um, aspect of child abuse. Um, the parents didn't abuse Trevor, but he was unfortunately murdered and abused in his last moments, which is really sad. And I'm going to say good riddance to Lawrence, James, and possibly the founder of Paladin Press, Peter Lund. Um, I know no one had to take those books seriously or buy them, but at some point, he, they had to have known someone would take those books seriously like what was the point of those books and what a cruel man Lawrence was and even though neither man and I use man loosely expressed remorse this was all Lawrence's fault he had his own son and ex-wife killed and I don't even know if he was even a total punk for not doing the murders himself or that he didn't or was it that he just didn't want his hands dirty I don't know if he actually didn't want to see his son die or he did, but he was too much of a coward maybe to look at the murders himself. I don't know, or he just didn't want to get his hands dirty. Maybe have James Perry take all the fall for it. And if you notice that throughout the whole story, he never referred to Trevor as his son, really. Um, as you all probably noticed, uh, if you paid attention, um, he was saying that boy and He's just laying up in the crib, you know, in his crib-like bed. He had a crib-like bed because he was quadriplegic and he was very small, tiny, tiny child. And um, he was just so mad that the little, his own son, even though he really didn't say it, um, had all this money and he didn't. And he made sure though, which is kind of, you know, weird. He made sure that his daughters were out of the house before the murder. So I guess he had a soft spot, unfortunately, for them, but not Trevor. And he had the nerve to be jealous that Millie got the bigger settlement, but like, duh, she's the one who took interest in her children full time. Um, and she's the primary caregiver. Everybody saw that. And, um, 
she actually cared about her son. And Lawrence also thought his time in Motown um, probably would have lasted forever. And he apparently, according to what I read, um, lived outside his means and went through his savings. And that's the primary reason from what I read, he went broke besides the child support payments and um, losing his job. He pretty much had a decent salary, but I guess, like I said, he thought Motown was gonna last forever. It didn't, he ran through his money and he was broke. And Lawrence was basically, as I said, a horrible man. And I read it was alleged that Lawrence had killed someone before. Um, this is just alleged, I've seen it in an article or two, um, according to Millie's own words, that while he was stationed in the Navy, he killed another soldier from what I read. And it looked, made it look, and he made it look like an accident. So that's another thing that further scared Millie, which would be, you know, me too. Um, and I don't know how accurate this is. So this is just according to a report that I read. And, but I will say, um, Millie and Trevor deserved better. And I felt Millie could have had any man she wanted, but she got with Lawrence and made three beautiful children, which I know she didn't regret at all, but uh, she just had to go out that way. And it's oh so unfortunate. And I find it interesting that Tiffany shouted to him that he killed her family, excluding him from her family. Like, you know, you're no longer, you're, you may have been pretty much a sperm donor, but you're not my father. You killed my mother and my brother. And um, they're truly evil people in the world. And I wonder what James thought as he did this. To me, he had no heart and he surely wasn't a minister. He said he was a minister or a spiritual advisor or whatever, but no who Im improvises quote unquote a child's death by making them suffocate or kills a child at all or anyone at all and um regarding nurse janice i feel bad for her because i didn't even know she knew millie was afraid of anyone i know millie told all of her all of trevor's nurses that they should never open the door to any strangers but apparently that didn't work because James was still able to pry the window open and kill them. And it's just all, all so terrible and sad. And one of the saddest cases I've ever read about on um, 90s crime time. And I'm just going to stop there. Um, so that's it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of 90s crime time. And I hope you were intrigued. Please let me know what you think of this episode on 90s crime time social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And um, lastly, if you enjoy the show and you haven't already, please leave a review, hopefully in a good way, on any podcast, excuse me, podcast platform that 90s Crime Time is on and has a rating system, primarily Apple. So please help me out with that and hopefully give the show at least four stars. And um, next, the next episode and the next episode, the next two episodes will have um, the announcement that I uh, made in the middle if you paid attention <laughs> throughout the show beginning to end and um stay safe and healthy and i'll see you next week uh, well not next week the week after next hopefully for a brand new episode of 90s crime time